Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is our very own Scott Prasser, who has worked in both the Commonwealth and Queensland state governments and served as a senior advisor to no fewer than three federal cabinet ministers. We'll be asking Scott about his latest book, Royal Commissions in Public Inquiries in Australia, second edition. Professor Scott Prasser, how are you? Thank you very much. Good. <laughs> Tell us a little about that professorship. I was a professor at the Australian Catholic University, and we ran a, a policy think tank called the Public Policy Unit. And well, we you know, once a professor, a always a professor. <laughs> I plan to keep the title after I retire. Um, we're here to talk about royal commissions, and I want to start with a very basic question, maybe the most basic of all. What is a royal commission? Royal Commission is a type of public inquiry. Public inquiries are temporary ad hoc bodies appointed by executive government with public processes that report to the public. And a Royal Commission is a particular type of Royal Commission, a type of inquiry with real powers of investigation based on statute. They can make people attend and they can um, uh, seize information and seize reports. So they're a very particular type of public inquiry. Um, as an American, of course, we don't have royal commissions in the United States. We don't have royalty. I assume this is a, a Commonwealth organ. To what extent are Australian royal commissions parallel to those in the UK or Canada or New Zealand? Well, all Westminster-type democracies, uh, United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand, uh, have all got royal commissions. Um, and in America, you have something a bit similar called presidential commissions which are also established under legislation. And you've had those from very, very early on. Uh, and so they're very similar to Royal Commissions in Australia. Uh, thanks, sorry, I, you caught me for a second uh, asking people who's here. We would like you, if you're here on the live stream to say hello in the chat box. Uh, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to get your questions for Scott. Scott, I'd like to ask you about the very first Royal Commission. I'm going to quote here, I need help from my notes. The Royal Commission on Transport of Troops from Service in South Africa in the SS Drayton Grange and the circumstances under which, and I quote, Trooper H. Burkett was not landed in Adelaide. Do you know why poor trooper H. Burkett was not landed in Adelaide and why that warranted a Royal Commission? Well, it upset, that Royal Commission was very much prompted by, guess what, politicians, okay, <laughs> upset. Uh, his family was upset. And uh, there, was, there was great concern, controversy about the conditions on the boat uh, coming back from South Africa, where a lot of Australians had gone to fight we weren't, we weren't in Australia at that time, but they, they brought, the Boer War started in 1899. So there was a lot of public controversy uh, and this Royal Commission came out and it was one of the, the first Royal Commission appointed by the, the new Commonwealth government. And a matter of fact, they had to pass legislation. They didn't have, didn't have legislation. So Alfred Deakin, the Attorney General, rushed through legislation, eight paragraphs long, so that Royal Commission could be held. Yeah, um, we'll say a quick hello to Anthony, Chris. Paul has actually prefigured one of my upcoming questions, so I'll feed it in now since it's come from Paul. Tell us about the difference or the connection between the Commonwealth Royal Commission mechanism and state royal commissions. 
Well, the Commonwealth, uh, very similar, the Commonwealth copied state legislation and the colonies existed before the Commonwealth. So the first Commonwealth legislation, the Royal Commissions Act 902, was copied from the states uh, and or from the colonies as it was then was. Um, and so it's very, very similar. And now in Australia, our Royal Commissions have always been established under legislation. In the United Kingdom, they weren't established under legislation. They were just appointed by the Crown. In Australia, they're appointed by the Crown, but they also have real powers. They can make people attend, they can obtain information, they can even phone tap if necessary. So they're very, very powerful bodies compared to the UK counterparts. In Canada, legislation was passed in the 19th century, and in New Zealand, uh, similar. So it's a Westminster concept and having a Royal Commission to really probe deeply into issues. Now, the second Australian Royal Commission was, or second Commonwealth Royal Commission, was, I know, a very controversial one. It set the place of the capital of Australia. How did that go? Was Canberra the first choice? No, uh, they, they, uh, this Royal Commission was a very controversial issue. Where do we locate the national capital? Uh, they went around and looked at lots of different places. Uh, their recommendations were Tumut or Albury. Uh, and of course, that didn't happen. And uh, so the, it wasn't until some years later that Canberra was chosen. So in the first two Royal Commissions of the Commonwealth, the first Royal Commission, the one you just mentioned, into the soldier, was regarded as a whitewash by the press at the time. And the second Royal Commission was ignored. And it didn't follow its recommendations. And they're the two criticisms people make of public inquiries and royal commissions. They're a whitewash, and secondly, they're ignored. Well, I, I'm curious about that because of course I understand why politicians would want to whitewash now and then, but why do they appoint a royal commission if they're going to ignore the recommendations that come from it? Well, they don't say that. Royal commissions and inquiries are appointed for legitimate reasons. We, want to, we don't know what to do, we need some advice. Also, we're in a bit of a pickle We've got an allegation against someone. Uh, so they appointed to show that they're giving action, but sometimes they don't like what the recommendations say. And sometimes the recommendations may be quite unexpected. Uh, and it's up to the government to decide what to do with those recommendations. But, but the trouble with appointing a Royal Commission, you never quite know where it's going to lead. And I'm particularly interested to know how to say this, if any celebrities, <laughs> this is my last little human interest question, if any celebrities have ever come to Australia for a Royal Commission? Well, yes, uh, we had a Royal Commission in 908 into the Australian Postal and Telegraph Services uh, because the Commonwealth had taken them over. There was a lot of concern about the efficiency of those services. So they appointed a Royal Commission and one of the people who became, was a witness to that Royal Commission was Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, who came out and gave very good evidence about the future of telephone services. He predicted that we'll be able to talk and see each other when we spoke on the telephone. Uh, he also said that people should be paid properly if they're gonna run the telephone service. Uh, and he also said, women make very good telephonists and you should employ more of them. Uh, so I thought it was quite interesting that he got involved 
in 908 in an early Australian Royal Commission. Now, Scott Fraser, I'll remind you, is the author of Royal Commissions and Public Inquiries in Australia, second edition that is available now. We'll get a link from LexisNexis. We'll get a link in the chat box for people who want to buy the book or have a look at it. We do have a question, Scott, from Anthony. Um, to what extent are Royal Commissions appointed simply to avoid responsibility? How frequent are those whitewashes? Well, it's still in the eye of the beholder, but some people would say, and I think Paul Kelly has written quite some good articles recently, he's called it the cult of the Royal Commission. And there's been criticism of the Morrison government in appointing some of the Royal Commissions we've had in the last few years. One into aged care, one into disability, uh, the one into the veterans issue, which was partly forced on them by the Senate in a sense. So some people say that maybe these are very complex issues there reporting on and are issues that need to be resolved by, by political discussion, not just the Royal Commission. They're kicking the can down the road is what's called in that case. So that's, that's a criticism often sometimes made. And there's been lots of examples of government setting up Royal Commissions. So the Royal Commission set up in the 1920s into the constitution by the Bruce government. And it was set up, they thought, just to show concern and set up deliberately late and took a long time to report. Uh, so therefore its impact was pretty limited. But there's a lot of, so there's a lot of criticism like that about Royal Commissions. Well, Christopher is asking, what about the opposite situation? Are there situations where governments avoid appointing a Royal Commission precisely because they don't want the embarrassment, they don't want to know the findings? Yes, there's, there's many examples where governments resist uh, appointing a Royal Commission. Um, the Howard government didn't want to report, uh, appoint a Royal Commission to, to different allegations of different types. Um, you'll notice that the Morrison government doesn't want to report, have a Royal Commission into the robo-cop sort of uh, uh, issue, uh, in Centrelink. Um, the, the Gillard government didn't want to report, have a Royal Commission into trade union issues, um, especially concerning the health services union. So. Governments are sometimes dragged uh, screaming and appoint a Royal Commission at all, uh, because sometimes they know this could be very embarrassing. And it's very interesting that sometimes governments, in, when they're in opposition, call for a Royal Commission, and then when they get into power, don't appoint one. So it's really quite interesting when they do that. Yeah, I've heard all these calls for Royal Commissions myself, as I've been in Australia the last 13 years. But there are also routine public inquiries that go on that are not royal commissions. Um, when is an inquiry of royal commission? When is it not? What, what difference does it make? Okay, royal commissions now tend to get pointed into some sort of allegation of wrongdoing or maladministration. Public inquiries uh, like the Gonski Review on School Funding or the Canberra Review on Financial Deregulation they're into, border they're into policy issues where governments are trying to work out what to do and they want some time to think about what the, what the policy should be. So there's been lots and lots of public inquiries into all sorts of policy issues, funding for the opera, um, school funding, uh, financial deregulation, uh, all sorts of issues, drought policy relief and so on. And these tend to bring in experts and it, they tend to... Uh, take uh, a, a bit of time, and they do what governments can't do. 
they go out and get a wide range of views and they try to sit down in a rational way and come up with some solution to a policy problem. Well, they come up with a solution. What happens to that report? Well, uh, sometimes governments respond to them quickly, which is fantastic. Uh, sometimes governments say, look, some of those recommendations are too expensive, so we won't go down that track. Um, sometimes they're forgotten. Now, one inquiry uh, which is dear to my heart is the, uh, the Morrison government set up an inquiry into nursing education in 2019. Uh, that inquiry reported that two years ago, this month, September 2019, we still haven't got a response to that inquiry two years after it's reported. Um, and this is in the nursing education, which given the COVID issue is a pretty important issue. And the last review of nursing education was in 2002. So, you know, 17 years ago. And I might mention the chair of that commission is CIS uh, fellow Stephen Schwartz. Uh, so it is the Schwartz Commission into Nursing Education. If anyone wants to look it up, it's a fantastic report. I've read it myself. Um, Paul raises the issue of the expensive royal commissions. And I can't let that go. He, he didn't mention it, but I can't let that go without talking about the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, which according to your book cost $342.3 million. I, I mean, I love the point, just the point three on there would pay my salary for a couple of years. Uh, why was that so expensive? Well, it's because um, it went on for four years. Uh, and because of the processes it involved, which had it had like a, a truth-telling component to it, where people uh, who had been harmed or said they had been harmed uh, wanted to um, and had to be treated very sensitively. That took a lot of time, uh, and they gave their views not under oath or under evidence, and also um, quite a big research component to it. So this was a very, very expensive uh, Royal Commission. It's, it's, at that time, Australia's most expensive Royal Commission. Uh, and also the government gave support so that the people could come forward and get, get adequate support. So a very, very costly Royal Commission. Uh, whether, you know, it's up to other people to decide whether it's good or not. It exposed lots of problems, which is great. Which is what we want a Royal Commission to do. Uh, but once you set up a Royal Commission like this, and it goes on for more than a couple of years, then that's what happens. They become very expensive. And also, Royal Commissions tend to be run as if they're courts, even though they're not courts, they're not judicial inquiries, but they have counsel and people doing cross-examinations and a whole swag of lawyers get involved in different royal commissions, and that adds to the cost. Quite different from a public inquiry, uh, what what went into the Murray inquiry into deregulation, for instance. But $340 million, I'm not asking you to justify it. I know it wasn't your commission. I'm trying to get a grip on how it could be that expensive. I mean, my back of the envelope calculation is that's 500 full-time staff members working for four years. I mean, that just seems astronomical. Are other Royal Commissions ever approaching that in expense or is this some kind of one-off? Well, the, well the, current, the current Royal Commission into Disability is going to exceed that because the Commonwealth government is going, is giving, is announced, it's giving uh, considerable funds to uh, help people come forward um, with these things. So that's an example of uh, Royal Commissions 
the um, Costigan Royal Commission was regarded, which, which was into corruption uh, in the 1980s, went for four years, and it was regarded as being very expensive, costing 40 or $50 million. Um, so it's the amount of staff that get involved and the process they use, which require people to have lawyers and senior counsel assisting, and that sort of thing, that, that expands the, the inquiry process. And also, some of these Royal Commissions employ large staff to do research. So we'll have sometimes in case more staff involved than you get in a university faculty, for instance. So that's, that's you know, maybe even for a whole university. So you've got a whole lot of people being employed uh, and a lot of expensive people being employed, as you need with lawyers and so on, um, to conduct the inquiry. Uh, plus there's the Royal Commission members themselves have to get paid and so on. So that's what lends itself to those sort of costs. Dennis wants to ask us, and he's going to ask about some details that I'm not familiar with, but hopefully you will be. The Royal Commissions that did not tell the government what they wanted to hear. How does that play out? And he's giving some examples uh, with police corruption, the Moffat 1972 Commission, the Beach 1979 Commission. But fundamentally, the question is, what does the government do when the Royal Commission tells it something, tells, gives it a message it didn't want? Governments have all sorts of strategies um, uh, to uh, fudge a Royal Commission. They can say, look, um, we're going to look into it. We'll set up a committee to review the Royal Commission. Um, they will say that we're already doing it. We've, we've got these things under control. The Beattie government did this. We had two Royal Commissions in Queensland into the overseas doctor scandal. Uh, and the Beattie government said, look, we're already doing these things. Um, we don't need to worry about this matter. Um, governments can also, um, uh, uh, you know, say that it's going to be too expensive to do some of these, these recommendations. So there's all sorts of things governments can do uh, to slow down a Royal Commission process, if you like. So the common ones are setting up a further review into, into the matter. Even the famous Gonski review set up by uh, um, the Gillard uh, Rudd government, even when it came out, um, Gillard announced uh, a, a, a sort of a, another committee to look at the recommendation. So although it already had the recommendation, we had another committee set up to look at them again. Now that slows the process down. And just remember, nationally, governments only are in power for three years. So sometimes governments hope that people will forget uh, as we, as we, till the next elect, after election, and the issue becomes less important. So governments play the game uh, like that. And sometimes, but sometimes a Royal Commission is so public that they can't ignore it uh, anymore. And sometimes some royal commissioners attack the governments for not acting. A very famous one was the Royal Commission into Agent Orange, which basically said that there was no correlation between Agent Orange in Vietnam and the effects on Australian personnel. This was not what the government wanted to hear. And they went about attacking the Royal Commission and the Royal Commissioner. Three years later, the minister had to get up and apologize to the Royal Commission and also publicly say he had got it right. That's what sometimes happens. 
Mm. Chris wants to know about prosecutions. He points out that the 2015 Royal Commission into Union Corruption did not result in prosecutions, or very few prosecutions, he says. Why don't royal commissions result? If they have all these, all these extraordinary legal powers, why aren't they resulting in more prosecutions for bad behavior? Well, they can only, the royal commissions have no power. Uh, they can, in terms of their, their recommendations, they can only recommend to the um, Attorney General's office or the legal process what to do. We've, we've discovered this. We think you should look at it in more detail. And sometimes the evidence that they've collected at the Royal Commission, which is different from a court, is not enough for prosecution to occur successfully. And Chris is quite right. I think on that Royal Commission, there's only been one or two prosecutions uh, from that Royal Commission report. But that doesn't mean, didn't say some useful things, but it's because the Royal Commission is a fishing expedition, if you like, finding out things. It, 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 it hooks up certain bits of information and it then gives it to the legal process to take over. And there's often a big difference in the level of evidence required for a legal prosecution to what a Royal Commission discovers. I'm thrilled to see so much uh, audience involvement today. Thanks, guys. And please do get your questions in. We'll ask, if you'll ask them, we'll ask them. We have both Paul and Dennis in the chat window talking about productivity commission inquiries and suggesting that they are much stronger, have much stronger internal controls or more focused or less expensive than the Royal Commissions. How does the Productivity Commission conduct an inquiry? And how does that differ from how a Royal Commission might conduct an inquiry? Well, Productivity Commissions, um, they, that's a, a government-run body. Uh, they uh, have a pro, some, some inquiries follow very similar processes to the Productivity Commission. The Productivity Commission uh, gets a reference from the government, just like a Royal Commission does, and it calls for people to make submissions and it holds some sort of hearings and consultation processes. And one of the great things about the Productivity Commission inquiries is they do a draft report. And then that draft report goes out for people to make further comment on. That means they get a pretty good idea whether they're active or not. But also, just like Royal Commissions and other public inquiries, their recommendations don't have to be implemented. Sometimes, uh, some Productivity Commission reports, governments ignore them. So there was a great Productivity Commission report on the teacher workforce uh, appointed by the Rudd-Gillard government. Uh, and it reported, it was, a, it was a very good report, but the government didn't respond to it. We never know what the government's response was to that. But the good thing about the Productivity Commission sort of inquiries uh, is that they are done in a very thorough way. Now, sometimes other public inquiries follow similar processes. The Murray inquiry into deregulation, appointed in 2014, uh, it released um, an interim report. Uh, it, uh, it, uh, it followed very similar procedures to the Productivity Commission. And everyone agrees that the Murray report was a really good report looking forward, not too many recommendations, and really seeing how our financial system can be more aware of consumer needs in the future. Now, Scott, you know we have a very highly educated, very civically engaged audience here at the Center for Independent Studies. And I'm going to prove that by putting a question through to you from Anthony. 
what are the legal obligations of witnesses at royal commissions? And I might take the opportunity of that question to ask you to give us a little more detail on the technical operation of royal commissions. How do they work? Okay. So royal commission, um, every state has got legislation governing these sort of bodies. They don't have, there is no legislation governing the other sort of public inquiries we spoke about. Okay. There's, so now what royal commission legislation gives you, it does several things. Firstly, it gives them powers to say, Salvatore, I want you to appear to the Royal Commission tomorrow morning. If you don't come, we'll arrest you or find you. Okay. And when you give evidence, you, uh, you don't have the same, you must answer the question, even if it's self-incriminating. You must answer the question. Okay. Um, all, a lot of legal rights don't exist when you go appear before a Royal Commission. Uh, this is why they, Probe. They probe where existing legal bodies don't probe. Um, they also, if I want to give evidence to a Royal Commission and I want to say something about Salvatore, uh, um, and I say, look, Salvatore is such and such and such and such, uh, I'm protected from you suing me from defamation, right? Also, if you want to give evidence about your employer, um, then you're protected from being sued by your employer. So that's one of the great, there's a protection there. It also means that the commissioners running the Royal Commission are also protected uh, from you suing the commission um, for uh, wrongful acts. However, a witness, a witness can say, I think the Royal Commission was showing bias in the way they act against me. And you can take legal action against the Royal Commission if you think they were showing bias against you. And that happened in Queensland with the Doctors Royal Commission, Overseas Doctors Royal Commission, where the first Royal Commission, the, the chair of it was taken to court and the court, the Supreme Court of Queensland said the, the chair was actually showing ostensible bias against two witnesses. As a result of that, that Royal Commission was closed down and they had to appoint a new Royal Commission under a new chair, um, with slightly different terms of reference to start the whole inquiry all over again. So there are some rights that a Royal Commission has got lots and lots of power. They also can say, I want to see um, all, your, all your files. You must give me all your files, okay? Uh, I, I, must, I must seize your computer, okay? In some cases, some Royal Commissions and some, some legislatures, can, you can, they can phone tap you, right? Now, a Commonwealth Royal Commission cannot investigate into issues of state government unless the state government has got, unless it's a joint Royal Commission. Similarly, a state Royal Commission can't investigate into a Commonwealth matter unless it's a joint Royal Commission. So that's why you often see Commonwealth state Royal Commissions where everyone comes together or have the same terms of reference. So you know, Royal, Royal Commission Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was a, was a Royal Commission involving all the states in the Commonwealth, so the Commonwealth Royal Commission could get the files. I hope it's some other Salvatore who's in so much trouble <laughs> with the Royal <laughs> Commissions, not me. But that does sound very worrying and open to abuse that someone can be compelled to testify. Or are there some kind, any kind of protections in place if you're, you know, later going to be potentially prosecuted for something you told a Royal Commission? 
Um, no, not particularly, except, except you think of the bias. There have been lots of court cases where um, uh, witnesses have tried to get out of appearing before a Royal Commission. Uh, when we had the Caustic and Royal Commission, which was into the Painters and Dockers Union, uh, which showed up corruption, um, tax evasion, or prostitution, all sorts of things. There was quite a legal tussle between some of the witnesses um, in the unions and the Royal Commission. Um, uh, the Royal Commission of Trade Union Governments, uh, the Hayden Royal Commission, you saw uh, the unions there thought that uh, the, the Royal Commissioner was biased. So uh, he ruled about that himself, by the way, uh, which, which everyone found a, a bit odd. So um, they are very powerful. And one of the problems about Royal Commissions, you're quite correct. If I do slander you or make uh, you know, an adverse comment about you uh, in a Royal Commission, it's public, it appears in the newspaper, um, and three years later, the Royal Commission may come out and say, oh, either nothing about it or that was wrong. But in the meantime, you've had your names in the newspaper as having done something, uh, which, which is a, a really dangerous process that occurs. Well, I, I understand that. It's just kind of an extension of parliamentary privilege because they're the same kind of privilege if you mm. appear before a parliamentary inquiry. Mm. But compelling someone to testify seems so illiberal mm. uh, that I'm really surprised that that's part of the Anglo-Australian tradition. Has that always been the case? Well, that, that's why Royal Commissions are, um, were really came into being. They were really established by the monarch to uh, probe and get information um, from um, the public or from certain sources. So they don't operate. Now, the advantage of this is there's no doubt that royal commissions into corruption, and some of your people have asked questions in the police, we wouldn't have got that information unless we had a royal commission. Because they can follow leads, they can, they can accept gossip. In a court of law, you can't do that. Um, so royal commissions have been good at probing and exposing some problems. But there is real collateral damage along the way. You're quite right. But the Royal Commission is a very serious business. And um, uh, so it has, you know, the Fitzgerald inquiry, getting members of parliament to appear before it, asking to ask questions. You must answer the questions. Um, this is quite different from just a, sometimes a court of law where you've got much more defensive. Yeah, I, I'm just still uneasy with it because obviously the things you say can then inform a criminal prosecution, but uh, not my system. Look, we have to wrap up. We're actually over time. And I apologize to you, Scott, for keeping you over time. But I do have to ask you one final question that came in from our viewers. Can you imagine a royal commission into Australia's handling of COVID-19? what would probably end up being the most controversial, longest, most expensive Royal Commission ever. Can you imagine it happening? I, I can imagine. I mean, last December when I was asked about this, I thought it wasn't, it was too soon to have a Royal Commission. But I think Chris Ullman um, on the CIS interview yesterday with Tom Switzer, he argued very strongly for a Royal Commission. Um, and it would have to be a Commonwealth State Royal Commission the terms of reference would have to be such that it wouldn't limit, um, you know, has the, has the Australian government's response to the COVID 
on what basis was it made. Um, I, I think in England, by the way, the British government, the English, the um, um, British government has promised a Royal Commission into this issue. It hasn't been announced yet, but it's promised one. So I'll, I can imagine this, this coming at some point in time. And I'm amazed that the, the uh, federal opposition hasn't picked up on this issue. But I can see it coming, and it'll be very interesting how the terms of reference are set. And who would you appoint? Would you appoint medical people, or would you appoint lawyers, or, or political scientists? You know, I'm quite willing to be the, you know, the Scott Prasser Royal Commissioner or something, but I doubt that that's going to happen. Um, it'd be a very interesting one. But I think there's so many um, questions about the, the, the federal government and state government's responses and so much confusion that it would be a very interesting exercise. But well, we'll have to leave it there. We've been discussing Scott Prasser's book, Royal Commissions and Public Inquiries in Australia, second edition, published by LexisNexis. Professor Scott Prasser, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks also to Nico Malian, our producer. Our executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver. The director of CIS is Tom Switzer. And next week, you can join us for a special on Liberty, where Tom Switzer will take the chair. He'll be interviewing Australian economist William Coleman. We hope you see us then on On Liberty.